Welcome to Think Business Futures. On this show, we take cutting-edge business research, we couple it with real-world examples, and explore what's actually happening in business, finance, and marketing. I'm David Brown. I'm a professor in the business school at UTS. I'd like to start with something that you might find a little confronting, so I have to warn you to brace yourself for what comes next. Do you know that one out of two people in Australia will be diagnosed with cancer during their lifetime? So the implications of this are quite clear. Either you or someone you care deeply about is going to face cancer. Do you know there's 145,000 new diagnoses of cancer made every year? What's that got to do with business, you ask? Treating cancer is a really expensive business, and this has two quite significant consequences. First, the care you get may be the care you can afford, or the government can afford. And second, cancer care is a substantial cost of the healthcare system. And as we know, governments like to reduce costs because lots of voters don't like to pay too much tax. See, herein is a real challenge for us as a society. To help us understand and explain cancer care in Australia, we've got Associate Professor Keyes Van Gool from the Centre for Health Economics Research and Dr Phil Haywood. Welcome. Thank you, David. Thank you. So maybe we can start with our current model of cancer care. Could you tell us how is cancer care currently funded in Australia? Well, in essence, it's actually not funded any differently to any other type of disease. You know, we fund drugs through the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. We fund GP through uh, the MBS, the Medicare benefit schedule. We fund hospitalizations through our activity-based funding. And so it is a disease that is funded in exactly the same way as heart disease or diabetes, etc. And that's one of the challenges because cancer is a little bit different to many other types of diseases. So can you tell me some of the differences then between cancer and some of the other illnesses you've explained in this context? Well, our system was really designed, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, you know, when hospitals started popping up and GPs started popping up, that we were, and and our Medicare system uh, was uh, evolving. Our system was designed around sort of uh, volume of care and acute care. So people going in, getting sick. Uh, We had a young population, so they got ill, they went in, they got sick, they got treated, went back out. Now, as our population gets older and as diseases like cancer um, become more and more prominent, um, the model of care that we require is very, very different. So all the technological breakthroughs that we've had over the last you know, few decades has been around keeping people alive with cancer for longer, right? And so we may not always cure cancer in an in acute way, we try and manage their symptoms, we try and manage their disease, we try and uh, make them improve the quality of life and extend their life. But that means that our system hasn't quite kept up with the type of care that patients really need. So what would be the implications then of costing on a disease where you go into hospital, it's acute, you get all the care in the world and then you get fixed or otherwise, as opposed to this kind of situation where you're talking about care over a period of time. I mean, why does that actually drive a difference? The, the difference is that the system isn't geared up to do that. So we have a very fragmented healthcare system. 
you know, think about your own experiences. You go to the emergency department and you, you walk away with a letter which you then have to go and talk to your GP about or, um, you know, uh, you have a specialist and you have a, a letter or you're, you're walking around with your um, x-rays, etc. So our system is very fragmented in, in that way, not just from a sort of patient perspective but also from a funding perspective. No one's really incentivized to try and manage you as a patient navigating the entire system backwards and forwards between hospital, primary care, your diagnostic imaging, your pathology tests, etc. So what you're explaining to me is that because this is an illness that you take with you over time, then the sorts of treatment that you require can be quite different or distinct over time and there's no real capacity to coordinate through those treatments. Whereas if you go to a hospital and you're sick, then all the treatments, they happen all at once in a particular location. Exactly. And, and so if it happens within the four walls, we're, we're pretty good at that. You know, you, you go in and you go out and, and you receive the services you need. But post that, it gets very challenging. And that's particularly for cancer care where there's lots of follow-up, there's lots of other treatment regimes that, that happen outside of the four walls of hospital. And that's where the system really falls down. So thinking about this a little further from a patient's perspective, are there other kinds of problems or issues that a patient is likely to face in this process? So we've talked coordination. I mean, what yeah. else is going on? Well, one of the big challenges, and this, this popped up in the uh, recent election debates that we've had, is that we are forcing patients to shop around in a lot of instances as well. And so, you know, people don't know at the start of their treatment how much their treatment is going to cost them out of, out of their own pocket. And it's very difficult for people to actually find out and know what that is going to be. And so they're making... You know, as they're making treatment decisions, they're making financial decisions that they don't often understand and know about. They, you don't, you know, I don't know what I'm going to get back from Medicare or what I'm going to get back from the private health insurance fund. Not only do they have to make, you know, very important treatment decisions, they have to make that in in an absence of clear understanding of what the financial implications are for themselves. So, in a sense, it's kind of designed like a market. Uh, the way you explain it, right? Well, yeah, Medicare and, and the healthcare system in Australia is a, is a market-oriented system, but it's a very fragmented market. So think about an airline, you know, and think about buying an, a, a ticket where you have to buy a bit, for, a bit of pilot time, a bit of flight attendant time, a bit of fuel time. You know, imagine, and then there's no system to actually pay for the engineer. Now, you know, would you jump on that? <laughs> no, that would be a challenge. Uh. <laughs> you know? So I would rather pay someone, pay an airline who takes care of it and follows the rules to make sure that they're maximising the safety from me getting from A to B. It also reminds me of a conversation we had with Professor Jane Hall, who obviously works in the Centre for Health Economics Research, and it was to do with uh, ageing and end-of-life related issues. How currently do these two worlds kind of align? So on the one hand, we know we have some substantial spending happening on healthcare, and yet on the other hand, we know that individuals and their loved ones have certain values and preferences. To what degree right now are we getting an alignment in your view? I think it's very mixed, and I think it depends very much on what happens. What's a trigger event? Do they have an advanced care directive? Have they spoken with their... Um, next of kin about it 
does the family agree on what the patient wants or are the family arguing? So, so that's how we do it. And I think we need to have more conversations in a less emotional frame of mind so that people can explore this. Which I suspect then overlays another level of complexity on the decision. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. We're forcing people in our system to make incredibly difficult choices, which just raises the anxiety. From my personal perspective, I would rather know that I could go to a, to a doctor or to a hospital knowing that I'm being looked after in the best possible way in terms of what the evidence says, what the evidence, you know, the well-researched evidence-based guidelines around what is the optimum care pathway, rather than having to make my own decisions and hope that I'm making the right decision. So there's a level of anxiety to do with, with that as well. So from a, if I use the word consumer or patient's perspective, this is an enormously difficult situation. But what about the other side of the transaction? So I guess I would be using the word provider to talk mm-hmm. about you know, medical professionals and other uh, professionals that are involved in this. Could you tell me a bit about what the challenges are for them? Well, it's it's the same sort of challenge from from the other side, which is as a professional provider, um, and I should declare an interest here. I am a, I am a medical doctor, an emergency department doctor, not a cancer doctor. You also face the problem of who do you refer your patients to? How do you ensure that they know what's going to happen when they get there? Both both from a medical point of view and a financial point of view, and part of that is experience that you that you form networks. Uh, that may be that may uh, be drawn up around the hospital or the institution that you're in, or they may be drawn up from locality, or they may be drawn up from past experience, um, and that gives you some information. And then you try, um, in my experience, to match the consumer with the provider that you think is going to provide the care that that consumer wants. There's also, from a provider's point of view enormous difficulty with the management of information. We're getting better and better and better all the time. All the IT changes are making making information flow around the system better. But when I first started, we were continually ringing people up and getting people to fax us information about what was going on with the patients. That's got better, but it's still not perfect. I have to say, sorry, I'm just a little gobsmacked at the moment because th- th- you're talking about information asymmetry in a context where the consequences are really, really significant for the patient. So as a, maybe as economists, you should explain to the audience what information asymmetry is. <laughs> yeah, sure. So in a typical way is, is we think about it as agents. So no different to hiring a real estate agent or anybody else who has more knowledge than the consumer in a particular market. And so obviously you want that agent to act on your behalf as though they were you. But obviously, there's always asymmetric information between the agent and the consumer. And that means is that that person, the agent, has more information than you do about a particular disease or about a particular consumption of goods that they that you should be consuming. Now, the difficulty is, is when there's a misalignment between what the agent gets you to do and what you as a consumer should do. And that misalignment can come through financial incentives, for example. So if if the doctor, the provider, gets more healthcare or more financial benefits from, by suggesting you should do more or of a certain thing, then they have uh, then the the agency relationship is broken. And so there might be they might be giving you more care than what you need or different care to what you need because of those financial incentives. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's actually an angle that I hadn't really thought that much about. When I was thinking information asymmetry, I was thinking about, so if you turn up to, say, a relatively new referring doctor with an illness who doesn't have a network of other doctors and specialists, that they're very confident in the kind of treatment provided, you then have information asymmetry at the medical level and then as a patient then there's massive information asymmetry because you're not a medical practitioner and know nothing about cancer and you know yep. what the treatment um, uh, yep. of it might be so this, this seems to me to be a very challenging issue in the medical field then yeah and just to supplement what you were saying I think that that's one, one of the reasons why we, we have this system that we do and why we have this fragmented nature is because we Medicare pays for certain types of services but it doesn't pay for all types of services it doesn't it you know a GP gets rewarded typically for seeing somebody face to face sitting next to them in a in a in a consultation room they don't get rewarded for building their networks or building you know doing other things that are vital to you know a patient's follow-up journey or follow-up care pathway they do get paid for on a, on a per service level by seeing a patients and so you know surprise surprise that's what they tend to do that's what the the system is focused on, which is great. You know, we need we need face-to-face consultations, but it's not because of lack of rewards for the other types of things that they should be doing. They typically don't do it, and that's why I think, you know, as Phil said, the the IT system there is no real incentive for anybody to build a good IT system. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2ser.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're talking about the cost of cancer care in Australia with Keys Van Gool and Phil Haywood. So can I just open up this fee-for-service model uh, a little bit further because... I think this is what you're talking about in terms of one of the challenges with this. Could you tell us a little more from a provider's perspective where the problems and issues are with that at the moment? Yeah. Um, so basically, fee-for-service is when you get paid by what you do, the activity. So if you do more, you get more more reward. Um, and it's a common. It's the way we pay for most of our goods and services, um, that you get a good or a service and you pay for it. So the person providing that gets it. Doesn't seem unreasonable. No. So there's a... There's, and the first thing to say is that fee-for-service isn't necessarily bad. Sometimes it's a really good way of organising things. There's uh, a number of positives about it. So the first is that it's very obvious what's going on to both the provider and in this, the consumer, in this case the patient, uh, that you're getting a service and that you're paying for the service. And that's true for the funder as well, that they can count the number of services quite easy. So it's got a degree of accountability to it. And if you're in situations, which, as Keys was discussing, we probably were when we were looking after in the early days, accidents, acute injuries and things like that, that incentivising people to do more in that situation is probably what you want. It has some disadvantages. So the first, as Keyes was saying, um, there's not really, there are some fee-for-services for coordination, but it doesn't by itself involve coordination. It also doesn't ensure that the care that's been provided is the very best care. Um, and what I mean by that is it doesn't mean that you would give necessarily incentivise to give the care the patient wants, or potentially it shifts some of the burden of care onto the patient. And what I mean by that is if you, and this is an extreme example, and I'm not suggesting that 
doctors do this, um, but I'm just using it as an example. If, for example, um, there was a choice between having a long consultation or two shorter consultations and you got paid per consultation, the doctor would be financially better off with the two shorter consultations. Now, that may or may not be a problem, but it does mean that you're shifting some, some burden onto the patient about having to attend twice to do that. Now, if one of those consultations wasn't necessary, that a short or a long consultation would be good, then perhaps you're over-providing care. And again, I'm not suggesting that all doctors are running around doing that. I'm just suggesting that the incentives aren't aligned for the best practice of care. And to add to that, it's also, it also comes down to your definition of what, in the fee-for-service definition, what mm. is your definition of service? We think of it as you know, going to the GP and that's a service. But in cancer care, you might not want to think about it in that very narrow sense. You might want to think about an episode of care so that it's a fee-for-episode or a fee-for-time-based a, a kind of bundle of care because that's, after all, what you're after. Any individual input, it becomes an input rather than a service. Okay, so can I just press on this just a little bit now because it's implicit in a couple of things that you've both said because now we're starting to talk about the motivation of doctors. Mm. Now, in kind of this idealistic world where we think, well, one becomes a doctor for altruistic reasons, you know, to help people, save people and, and so on, which may have been more the case in previous decades, in an era where if you get a cracking result at high school and you're the smartest kid in the room and you want to make the most money, you go and do your you know, doctor's degree, become a GP, and then you specialise, and then you make a fortune for the rest of your life, which is a quite different motivation set. Now, obviously, there are extremes, but I guess we have to face the reality that those different motivations currently sit in the marketplace, and that seems to sit underneath, or certainly implicitly, in what you're talking about. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, you know, we've done lots of research around, around provider behaviour, and implicitly... What it points out is that they're no different to anybody else. They, I'm sure that you know, 99.9% of all providers want to do the best thing for their patients, um, but it becomes incredibly difficult for them to do that if the financial incentives are, are not there to do the right thing, and and so they're fighting their own costs and their office costs in, in order to survive and, and and earn a living like they're entitled to do. Um, uh, when you know, the financial incentives and the way that they earn that money is not necessarily directed exactly to the right level types of care. So they might want to do the right thing, but they can't because of the way the the system is is currently arranged. So we're setting a system up to drive behaviours in a way that perhaps we don't really want when we think a little more objectively about it. Okay, that's really interesting. So tell me then about your value-based payments model. Well, and that's where that's exactly what it's trying to change. It is trying to change the incentives around the from going from a fee for service where where which is driven by an incentive to produce volume of care, you know, high volume of a particular type of care, and change that to thinking about uh, a episode of care and around the value around that episode and also about the quality of that episode. So really trying to bring quality and evidence into the mindset uh, and into the financial incentives uh, that doctors uh, the doctors face. 
can you just say, give me an example with this? I'm just yeah. challenging a little to get my head around what that actually looks like yeah. as so, a patient. Sure. So one one way of thinking about this is 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 bundling services. So we know that you know a cancer patient will require. A, some radiotherapy or they require some chemotherapy and they require uh, some follow-up care, you know, six monthly visits. Now, think about it in terms of bundling all those services together and not saying, well, we're not going to pay you on a per service every time you see someone, but we're going to bundle that to all that together and give an institution or a doctor a a bucket of money to look after the patient for all the care that they need over that period of time or during that that treatment phase. And not only will we pay you that that amount, you get the freedom on on how you want that services to be delivered. So, you know, if you want to hire allied health services or you want to hire oncology nurses to do that, that's great. You do that because that's that's evidence suggests that that's just as effective as having an oncologist sitting there all the time. Um, and so you can do that. And not only that, we'd like to have some performance measures in there as well, like quality assurance processes that people don't walk away with lots of infections or, or adverse outcomes. So, we, we, you know, that that is the big change from going from a volume on a, a volume of services to an episodic based kind of payment with some quality in, uh, indicators there as well. So presumably that requires some forecasting around what kind of care a patient is going to need. And given the idiosyncratic nature of cancer itself and then treatment for cancer, how do you forecast what sits in the bundle? Now, uh, this is exactly the sort of research that we're going to be engaging in. One of the great things about the infrastructure and particularly data infrastructure in, uh, in, in Australia is that it's moved forward a long, long way in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. So, for example, we have a, um, a study in New South Wales called the 45 and Up uh, study, which has about 260,000 uh, people, uh, all aged 45 and, and over, and represents about 1 in 10 people living in, in New South Wales. What's great about that study is that it, uh, people, every participant has given consent to essentially link all their administrative data, which means access to the Medicare data, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, the inpatient, the cancer registries. And so we can get from, from that data, we can get a very accurate picture of the types of care and the types of services that people are using conditional on having been diagnosed with, with cancer, for example. That is interesting. So this is really what this uh, research grant is about that you've got recently. Is that right? Because I understand you're setting up a research centre or a search group dealing with, with this issue? That's exactly right. So we've just been uh, awarded a uh, an NHMRC Centre for Research Excellence uh, grant, uh, which over the next five years we will use to try and work out uh, what we will work out with on the basis of data sets like 45 and up to find out what is the patterns of care and utilization around particular types of cancers and particular parts of the the cancer pathway to to know what what could go inside one of these bundles can you please just take us to the research program uh, specifically and tell us a little bit about that and particularly in reference to some of the things that we talked about earlier so we talked about a lot of challenges for cancer care for both patients and providers. And so how are you going to start looking at some of those issues in this research program? Um, So 
As you'd expect, you're now talking to researchers about their research. We may do a bit of a deep dive on this, but there's really three main three main strands to the research that's going to be done under the CRE. So the first one is we need to understand what's going on at the moment. We under, need to understand patterns of care, and we need to understand who's funding cancer care. Now, a lot of this research has been done already, so we're building upon it, but we want to do it at a more granular level than has been done up to date. The second strand is, as we were talking about, we want to know exactly how providers change their behaviour in relation to changes in the way that they're funded. So there's a bunch of natural experiments that have happened over Australia when there has been changes from a very fulsome fee-for-service to a bit more of a mixed model. And so we want to get a picture um, about how providers respond to things. And then we're going to take both of those strands and combine them up in a simulation of what will happen uh, to, to people with cancer when and if we change the funding rules. And the idea is to try and give policymakers some kind of clarity about what may happen. Um, and that's why it's really important to have, uh, to have people who are involved in this on the coalface as part of the program from the very beginning. Because as researchers, we may come up with some great ideas, but there needs to be the institutions that exist in, in, the, medical, in, in the medical servicing to ensure that those ideas can be carried through. Ultimately, this is about empowering both the consumers and the providers to to provide high-value care in this area. And this may be my ignorance, but just thinking about what we discussed at the outset of the show and the fact that this, in a sense, looks like a market which is somewhat dysfunctional because it's no longer fit for purpose, what you're really doing is looking at suppliers and buyers if I use economics language, and looking at a a far better market design so that then both the buyers, so patients, you know, is going to be in a much better position to get the kind of care they need and then people who provide that care who have um, often, you know, really great intentions and work in a quite difficult system are able to provide the kind of care required of patients. That's exactly right. And and when you say what, uh, what type of care is required... We go back to what does the evidence suggest? You know, what's the optimum care pathway? And so that that becomes the benchmark. Thank you so much to both you, both Keys and Phil, for coming into the studio, talking with us uh, about this. And as I said, we are really looking forward to what this research produces. Terrific. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is reported on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com slash thinkbusinessfutures. You can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. Our executive producer is Jason Lequier. Ben Robertson provides additional production support. And now for something completely different. Given you've listened to Think Business Futures before, you'd be aware that we take research and we pair it with examples. And typically, this is around organisations and business. Now, it's true we have a lot of choice in our access for great research. But the show isn't a one-way conversation. We like to hear from our listeners and we're interested in the kind of concepts and practices that you're interested in. We want to hear from you. 
So please send us your ideas to thinkbusinessfutures at 2SER.com. And if you record a voice memo, attach it to the email and we'll try to play it on the show. Whatever the topic is, send it to us at thinkbusinessfutures2SER.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Till next time.